Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we pay tribute to breakfast, the relaxed, sit down and enjoy it with the ones closest to you kind of breakfast with author Mark Pupo. His newly released book is called Sundays, a celebration of breakfast and family and 52 essential recipes. He serves up his reasons why it is not only the most important meal of the day for the body, but also for the soul. It is affectionately known as Winter Peg, but this year's spring has not yet sprung in the city. It went through all 31 days of March without once seeing the mercury rise above freezing. That's the first time it's happened since 1899. We find out why and whether there's any warmth on the horizon for them. A tragedy has unfolded on the Canada-U.S. border in the Mohawk Nation territory of Akwesasne. Eight migrants, including two small children, have been found dead trying to cross illegally into the U.S. Authorities say the victims are members of two families, one Romanian, one Indian, and it comes as U.S. authorities are increasingly concerned about a spike in migrants trying to cross into the country from Canada. But first, it is a huge deal financially and figuratively as Rogers Communications' $26 billion takeover of Shaw cleared its final regulatory hurdle. And it should be a done deal by next week. The federal industry minister says conditions are in place to mean that it will be beneficial for Canadian consumers. But is he right? Let's start tonight, though, with a very big deal in the Canadian telecom industry. Rogers Communications' $26 billion takeover of Shaw cleared its final regulatory hurdle with approval this morning, or at least it was announced today from Federal Industry Minister François-Philippe Champagne. The CRTC and the Competition Bureau had already given the agreement the green light, and the minister's decision ends a lengthy review that began after Rogers announced its agreement to buy Shaw back in March of 2021, already two years ago now. The last step was okaying the transfer of wireless licenses from Freedom Mobile, which is owned by Shaw, to Videotron, which is owned by Quebec Or in Quebec. And this is amount meant to allow the deal to proceed while ostensibly creating more competition in the wireless field because Videotron and Freedom will now compete with Rogers, Bell, and Telus, or at least that's how the minister says he's putting consumers first. The evidence is undeniable. The way to drive down prices is through competition. Having a fourth strong national player does lead to lower prices. All right. So we'll see if that's true or not. Champagne also says that Ottawa secured some legally enforceable commitments from Rogers and Videotron to bolster competition in this sector, and that the conditions on the deals are binding contracts that will be subjected to regular reporting. Should either party breach any of these commitments, they will be required to pay significant financial damages, up to $200 million in the case of Vidéotron, and up to $1 billion in the case of Rogers. And I will be like a hawk on behalf of Canadians to make sure that this is happening. And make no mistake, we will be monitoring the performance under these terms and conditions and making sure that we enforce the terms of these contracts on behalf of Canadians. I always love it when politicians use the term make no mistake because it doesn't mean anything, but it's put in there for emphasis. Well, Rogers' CEO called the merger transformative and said the combined companies will invest substantially to bring more choice, more value, and more connectivity to Canadians. Uh, Brad Shaw, the CEO of Shaw, said in a statement the merger will provide the scale necessary for the future success and competitiveness of the Calgary-based company. A reminder, Shaw Communications and Chorus Entertainment, which is our parent company, are owned by the Shaw family based in Calgary. So the deal is done or should be done when the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed in the coming week or so, or the T's are crossed in the coming week. But what will it mean for us? What will it mean for Canadian consumers, regardless of who you deal with for your phone, internet, and so forth? Joining me now is John Lawford. He's Executive Director and General Counsel for the Public Interest Advocacy Centre. Thanks for your time tonight, John. Thanks for having me, Ben. So this is a very big deal, financially and figuratively. Uh, put this into perspective for listeners, just how big a deal is it? Well, the number is $26 billion if you include debt, but to bring it down to the more normal level, you're, you're getting Rogers buying all of Shaw's cable infrastructure. That's their home phone, their TV services, their internet services, and 
trying to get their wireless services, but they don't get all of that. They get a little piece, the Shaw Mobile customers, but the Freedom Mobile customers are being spin off. But it's affecting everybody out west in Alberta and, and British Columbia that have Shaw already for their cable or internet at home. What impact will it have on existing customers? I know that uh, Shaw customers at West will see their all those bills transfer. We'll see a new a new company name on top of all those uh, all that correspondence. But beyond that, the interesting thing is, other than changing from blue to red, you know, it's going to. There's no guarantee on pricing for internet or television service. I'll just let you know. Right. <laughs> so okay. Rogers can do what it what the market bears, they are a large provider and they will be able to take on, say, TELUS in a lot of markets with no trouble. Whether they choose to use that power to raise prices or to lower them, uh, we don't know, but the trend is usually upwards in internet services these days. And we've also lost a lot of smaller internet providers in the last couple of years. So I, I would expect them to go up. Yeah, I, I know on the jobs front, Rogers has agreed, and I think this was part of the original deal, that in, in, at least in terms of jobs in Calgary, they're going to leave that alone for the time being. Actually, today, the minister said that Rogers had agreed, and it's in the agreement, to provide 3,000 new jobs, new jobs right. in the West and around Calgary, and to keep Calgary as a regional Rogers headquarters. It was interesting to hear um, uh, Minister Champagne today because clearly he had his speaking notes all, all, and he's quite an enthusiastic speaker. And he was really trying to drive home this idea that this will actually increase competition. And I saw a lot of people wondering, well, how how does consolidation increase competition in this country? So what did you make of that? Well, yes, I had the same reaction as the journalists in the room, which was very loud and questioning his premises because it's very hard to produce lower prices when you allow more concentration, bigger providers. And on the wireless side, he said that he had approved the deal to take the Freedom customers and give them to Videotron, and that he had further brokered a deal, which was legally enforceable to have Videotron offer their services at 20% off, we're not quite sure how you calculate it, the average price of the big three. That that means that the Videotron, if you switch to them, or you are already a Freedom customer, you might be getting a 20% off something discount. But nothing stops the big three, including Rogers, now from raising prices. And I guess Videotron would be happy because they're still getting 80% of the new higher pricing. So it's it's not necessarily a recipe for lower prices for wireless in Canada. It just isn't. The, the Videotron aspect of this one is interesting because it wasn't talked about a lot when we were talking about the deal initially. I mean, everyone knew it was there. And yet today, the minister talked about it a lot, this idea of creating a viable fourth competitor in the mobile space in this country. Uh, do you buy that? I really have to call him out on that one because already Freedom was not a fourth national player. And the minister specifically in his written materials and went on the stand, if I can put it that way, orally today, said they were creating a fourth national wireless player. No, they're not. <laughs> you won't be able to buy a Videotron service in Halifax. You won't be able to buy it in the north. You won't be able to buy it necessarily right away in Manitoba either, and certainly not in Saskatchewan, which has Sastel. So that's just not true. This has always been the problem. There were many ministers before who wanted to have a fourth national player because the research from Europe and other countries is quite clear that if you have four players, one of them always breaks free and tries to price more aggressively, and then the other three are dragged into a price fight, which is what you want. But as soon as you go from four to three, then the oligopoly tightens up and you get a 90% market share split three ways. That's exactly what we have in Canada. So it's a wish on his part that the fourth player will emerge out of Videotron taking over the bits of freedom, but it's a long, long road, even over 10 years. And the other thing that the minister made a lot of noise about today was this, this idea that companies will be held to account by the government. He said he'll be watching like a hawk and that mm -hmm. there are potential penalties involved up to a billion dollars, I believe, over several years for Rogers, up to 200 million, I believe, for Videotron if they don't abide by these rules that the government's put in place. Uh, how enforceable are those? I mean, how much of a, how much of a, of a guardrail is this? Well, it's never been tried before. He was quite clear as well about saying this was an unprecedented agreement, and I agree with him. <laughs> uh, never before has a minister of industry tried to use powers under his act to keep telecom pricing in line. And he was backed into that corner because the Competition Bureau wasn't permitted to block this thing by the Competition Tribunal. It's a last gasp effort to say, 
competition works, but look, we have to jig the prices. I mean, do they believe in competition or not? Well, I mean, I, I, in this sense, I guess, I guess, given the circumstances, the deal went through all its regulatory hurdles. So he, the, the minister only had two options here, which is either yes or no. And clearly, yes. no wasn't wasn't going to happen, right? I mean, I don't think right. Yeah. But he did have a third option. His third right. option was to say the regulators have spoken, so go for it, no conditions, because the competition tribunal had said this is going to be competition positive. What it shows is he didn't believe the competition tribunal. I don't believe the competition tribunal. Nobody really in their right mind believes the competition tribunal that making Rogers bigger and letting this thing go through, even with a divestment of the wireless part to Quebecor, will produce lower prices, even in wireless. And so there was a mad scramble inside Industry Canada who knew that, you know, average people would see through this to try to put some kind of guardrails on this, some kind of way to spin it so that it looked like there was going to be a price reduction. To be enforceable and to be workable, it would take 10, 20% of consumers switching to Quebecor's new freedom offering, whatever they call it, which, you know, Canadians are sticky consumers. They don't trade their cell phone plans for other for other companies very often. So it's a heavy, heavy lift. So, I mean, Canadians are notoriously angry about the price we pay for, for wireless service in this country, the price we pay for all our telecom bundles in this country, because anyone who's ever been anywhere else realizes how much cheaper it is elsewhere. So what does this do for all of us, even if you're not, you know, if, if you're with TELUS or Bell or somebody, and this whole deal doesn't really impact you one way or another, what does it mean for the overall landscape? Oh, it does impact you. It impacts you as a TELUS or a Bell or a Rogers subscriber for wireless because the market structure is effectively identical to what it was before the deal is announced. You've got three majors splitting 90% of the market, 10% left over, of which the sort of fourth player is sort of freedom (laughs) if you have it in your area. So if we have record profits, which we do, and the highest prices effectively in most wireless services in the world, nothing will change because the companies involved haven't changed. Their pricing structures won't change. Nothing will change. for the. And this is a 10-year deal. So in effect, what the minister has done is blocked out any other competition or any other way of structuring the market for another 10 years. So hold on tight because we're, we're going for another dip on the roller coaster for 10 more years. I was reading that uh, that wireless prices have fallen a bit of late. I mean, again, we 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 like to complain about how much we have to pay, especially in these inflationary times. Uh, but that wireless prices had actually fallen a bit. Do you think that may reverse? Depends on the way you measure wireless prices falling, right? Because Canadians are paying more, and the companies are always quite happy to tell their shareholders that their average revenue per user is going up or staying steady. So I don't see that it will be dropping. What happens is, like Moore's Law, they can offer you more data because the networks get more efficient and faster. And oftentimes in the calculations, they'll say, oh, you now have 20 gigabytes for the same price you used to have 10. Well, okay, but we expect the networks to be twice as as performing, you know, over a year later when there's new new technology. And yet they count that as, you know, you're getting twice as much for your money. No, you're not you're getting the expected level of service that's available in the world. And our prices, we have that, you know, Bell, Telus and Rogers in a report I just saw from we Rewheel, which is out of Finland that compares wireless pricing on data. Bell, Telus and Rogers are the second, third and fourth most expensive services for hundred gigabytes of service in the world all three of them. And then there's one other carrier in South Africa that's ahead of them. And then every other carrier in the world is behind them. So there's a long, long way to go. So even being charged 80% of that amount in the West, if you go with freedom or you're lucky enough to be on them already, you're still paying at least double most what most other countries have. We would have to cut our prices by 50% <laughs> to get us in the middle of the pack. So for consumers out there tonight wondering, well, okay, now what can I do about, I mean, what, what could I do about this? What's your advice? I mean, how is this going to I mean, for consumer, we, we're pretty much beholden to just a few, right? We don't have much, much, sure. much, many options. I agree. It's daunting. But, you know, don't buy the story from the government that this is a win in any way. What it is, is Rogers trying to get their way and driving this football over, you know, it took them two years to get it over the goal line. But the fact is, it's keeping them where they were. Plus, they get the wire line control, which is what they really want 
to be able to compete with Bell and TELUS who have a network sharing agreement across the country. So what we've got is an effective duopoly across this country. If that bothers you, if you think prices are too high, we need a new structure. That kind of thing is the kind of action that you need to take at this point because, I'm sorry, I've tried this over the last 10, 15 years of doing it the right way through CRTC and lobbying the minister and ra-di-da-di-da, and nothing happens, nothing changes. So it's political action time. I mean, here we are, right? Here we are. It's, you know, March 31st, 2023, and here we are. You know, I'm frustrated, as you can tell, and I'm not saying that things can't change. I wish Videotron well. I invite people to try their services, perhaps, and to switch and do all the good things. But if it doesn't work, you know, I think we have to pull the ripcord. Well, John Lawford, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much for having me, Ben. I spent a lot of time reporting from Europe at a time when the migrant issue was very much front and center. And the daily reports that we used to see and then do about people losing their lives, making that very treacherous crossing of the Mediterranean, often in far, uh, far from seaworthy vessels and so forth. And I always used to think back that in Canada, it happened so rarely that we were so rarely confronted with the reality of the dangers of human smuggling, the dangers of those who will risk so much to try to get from one place to another because they don't see any other way of doing it. Well, that's come home. I mean, we've certainly found out that last year in Manitoba with the death of several members of an Indian family as they were trying to make their way to uh, the U.S. from Manitoba and got lost in the snow and the cold. And we're learning it again today. Uh, The bodies of eight migrants, including two young kids, have now been recovered from the St. Lawrence River in the Quebec section of the Mohawk Territory of Aquasasne, which straddles the Canada-U.S. border, includes a little bit of Ontario, Quebec, and New York State. Uh, police say two more bodies were found today. All of the victims are believed to have been from two families, one of Romanian descent and the other from India. Uh, here is the police chief of, from Aquasasne. Previously, six individuals were recovered from the waters in Aquasasne. Today, two additional bodies have been recovered. One, an infant, a Canadian citizen of Romanian descent, and one adult female believed to be an Indian national. A total of eight bodies have now been recovered from the waters. All are believed to have been attempting illegal entry into the United States from Canada. The circumstances surrounding the deaths continue to be investigated. There is no threat for the general public. Now, this comes less than a week, of course, after that very popular irregular border crossing in Quebec called Roxham Road was closed. That was that saw a lot of people crossing from the U.S. into Canada at an irregular border crossing following finalization of an agreement between the two countries during President Biden's visit to Ottawa last week. Um, earlier today, though, Aquasasne Mohawk Nation Deputy Police Chief said that there this has no connection to that decision since the families were, in fact, crossing in the other direction, into the U.S. Uh, the Prime Minister, too, was in Moncton today. He was asked about the tragedy. There's a lot of information, uh, unconfirmed information circulating right now. We need to understand properly what happened, uh, how this happened, and uh, do whatever we can to ensure that, uh, uh, that we're minimizing the chances of it happening again. Now, a lot of attention of late, certainly on this side of the border, has been paid to the number of migrants entering Canada at that irregular border crossing at Roxham Road, which is now, of course, closed. But on the other side of the border, there has been an increasing concern about a spike in the number of migrants entering the U.S. illegally from Canada and the dangers that brings as this latest tragedy clearly shows us. Joining me now is Yvon Donzurin. He's a professor emeritus in criminology and criminal justice at the University of the Fraser Valley here in B.C. Yvon, thanks for your time tonight. Good evening. So, I mean, this one, Aquasasne is, is a well-known area for, uh, you know, for because of where it sits. It sits with territory in the U.S. and in Canada and in Ontario on this Aquasasne Mohawk territory. But this one, uh, this, is, uh, this is quite the tragedy and a big reminder about the dangers of human smuggling. Uh, what can you ascertain from what we do know so far? Well, as the Prime Minister said, there's still a whole lot of things we don't know. And we, it's unlikely that these people were trying to do this on their own. So clearly they were supported or accompanied by someone who was presumably trying to help them and is has disappeared or is hiding somewhere. I don't really know. But, uh, you know, it's unlikely that these people were doing this on their own, particularly, you know, on the, on the water, on the St. Lawrence River. So we'll find out more about it. But it, as you said, it's a terrible thing that happens. And 
it's happening more and more because people are more desperate and and are taking greater risk to themselves. You were making a comparison with what was happening in Europe, but, or still happening in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, normally, it's not that dangerous. Uh, but of course, if you try to... Uh, to cross the St. Lawrence River in the spring when there's still ice floating and all this, you're you're taking a big risk. And the same thing, you know, people who don't know the hard, harshness of the Canadian winter, like, you know, we know happened last year, uh, earlier mm-hmm. this year, uh, basically took risks they should not have taken. So, uh, But that's mostly an expression of how desperate people are or how ignorant they are of the risk. And I say the second thing, ignorant of the risk, because sometimes they're encouraged by uh, by people who are supporting, you know, various forms of migrant smuggling, you know, giving them false hope and false reassurances, uh, basically to get their money. And they, they care about the money, but they don't really care so much about the people making it safely. So we don't know the facts in this particular case, but we know, generally speaking, that uh, you know, that uh, migrant smugglers uh, are not usually that preoccupied with the safety of the people that they are helping, and um, very often they have, end up being left, uh, you know, to their own means. Uh, or in a worst-case scenario, they're delivered to p- people who are going to exploit them on the other side. So it's a uh, it's a big yeah. problem. I, I mean, I, I was trying to think back, having. You know, I was trying to think back, having covered these issues in the past, about uh, I never remembered a loss of life this significant when it came to those trying to cross the border. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time. I grew up in Montreal. I spent a lot of spent some time in Aquasasne as well, uh, and, and a reminder of just how treacherous the St. Lawrence can be at this time of year as well. Absolutely, and and the winters. I mean, some people, like someone who comes from. Southern India, for instance, uh, has not been exposed to that kind of danger. Doesn't realize that uh, uh, without proper equipment, uh, one is not going to survive for much longer, much long time in uh, in the cold. So, some of it perhaps is people who are not aware of the risk, or have been told to ignore the risk, or have been reassured that uh, they would be taken care of. Uh, and you're right. I don't remember. To me, this is. Uh, you know, there's always there has been cases in the past of people uh, getting hurt uh, or dying, but it was rare. And now we've we got two fairly large cases, uh, and uh, you know that signals something. It's hard to know exactly what it is, but uh, because it's not harder today than it was, not much harder today than it was to cross the border illegally. You know, we have a very long border with the U.S. Uh, if you know what you're doing, it's possible to do it. If you have a competent smuggler, you probably can do it without too much difficulty. We know that because people who've been arrested for migrant smuggling, uh, basically we were able to determine that they were moving hundreds of people across with, in a fairly safe way uh, and without anyone really complaining about uh, the services. So it's it, it's quite easy, actually, to cross that border illegally. So I have to wonder, why is it that people go through those, you know, difficult, dangerous uh, pathways? And it's got to be because they're either unaware of the risk or they're being lied to and, uh, you know, reassured falsely that uh, it's a safe way to cross. Yeah, I mean, in this case, uh, today, the Grand Chief of uh, the Aquasasne Mohawk Nation was on talking about how they just don't have the resources. They've seen a spike or at least an increase in the number of people attempting to use their territory to cross into the U.S. And they just don't have the resources to stop it. But that's a story that's true from one end of the border to the other, really. Absolutely. It's true everywhere. And again, uh, it may be, I mean, it's not impossible that these uh, poor people were trying to do that on their own, but it is so unlikely uh, that they would have tried that on their own. So you have to look at, uh, whether it's on on Akwazasne Reserve or somewhere else, you have to look at who is behind that. You know, this is not happening by coincidence. Uh, that people are using that route when there are other routes. They're using that route because some smugglers are using that route to make money. And I'm not 
calling anyone there. I'm not uh, pointing the finger at anyone, but it's got to be someone who's familiar with, to that re- with that region, right? And, yeah. and the geography and the difficulties and where the controls are and so on. What always shocks me, and I know you, you study this stuff, you've always that, you know, you see these families. Um, it's the kids. It's the yeah. kids. Absolutely. You know, how, how could you put small children in a little boat on the St. Lawrence in March? Or send them out into the winter in, in Manitoba in January? You know, it, it, it's, it's shocking. It is. And again, you know, you can't assume that the, the parents that are involved in this uh, were, you know, totally no. uh, crazy. Yeah. So somehow someone gave them the wrong information or or or, or promised them, uh, you know, an easier journey. Uh, again, we don't really know what happened behind it, and uh, so we don't know who else was involved. But I, I just can't believe that these are two families on their own coming from different countries who decided to move, no, yeah. you know, across the St. Lawrence together in the no, know, late winter, it, it, early spring. That doesn't make any sense to me. So it's someone's no. beyond that. You know, there's a network of, of smugglers. Yeah. Yeah. I, be, I mean, I've been there. There's no way you could find your way around uh, that that part of the world without having someone to guide you. You just couldn't. You couldn't. Absolutely. Difficult. Yeah. You know, the smugglers do not care about their lives at all. You know, all they care about is the money. Somebody that might smuggle human beings will also, on their way back, smuggle guns into Canada or uh, smuggle drugs with, with these people into the United States. That was a member of the police force in North Dakota talking about the situation on the border there with Canada. Of course, I'm speaking with Yvonne Donzurant. He's a professor emeritus of criminology and criminal justice at the University of the Fraser Valley here in BC. We're talking about the discovery of the bodies of eight migrants, including two kids, found in the last 24 hours. They were attempting, it seems, to cross into the U.S. Uh, from Canada on the Aquasasne Mohawk Reserve, which straddles the New York State, Ontario, and Quebec, not far from Cornwall. And uh, potentially, I mean, I don't remember a tragedy of this scale involving migrants trying to make that crossing. One thing I hadn't, until I was looking through it today, Yvonne, is I, I, because it's happened quite recently, there seems to have been a big spike in concern on the U.S. side of the border with a big increase in the number of people crossing over from Canada into the U.S. on the northern border. Well, actually, you know, that had been the pattern for many years, mostly people coming through Canada and going to the U.S., but in the last uh, year or two, uh, the pattern has reversed itself, and we had a lot of people coming from the U.S. into Canada, in part because of the uh, U.S. policies uh, on immigration and separation of family, all of those other things. So some people had probably good reasons to try to... uh, take refuge in Canada, but so the, the, the patterns have changed over the years, and it has a lot to do with uh, where people think that uh, they may create a better future for themselves and others. I mean, we, I think in the case uh, that we are talking about today, one of the families was, uh, you know, Canadian, or at least Canadian residents, so they had or, no reason Or had to children, flee. yeah. Had children. Yeah. So... Uh, something on the other side was attracting them. It could have been a job. It could have been relatives. Uh, you know, it could be all kinds of things. Again, we don't know the facts, but um, and it can also be that uh, people, uh, uh, you know, were involved in other form of uh, you know tra- uh, smuggling. I doubt it, but uh, it's not impossible that they were yeah moving we don't quite things know. with uh, them. You know, so it's not. But it takes us back to what, uh, you know, the person that you quoted earlier or that we listened to, it takes us mm-hmm. back to smugglers, right? So the question here is that, you know, most of our resources are there protecting the border, not the people, and uh, making sure, you know, stopping people who try to cross. Uh, but there's not a whole lot, in my experience, not a whole lot of investment in actual investigations to get those uh, smugglers down there networks they make a lot of money uh the few times where they get arrested you know it's not uncommon to find tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in shoe boxes and you know so basically these are these are people who make a living out of doing this and of course as the uh person we were listening to earlier said you know they don't care about what 
happens to those people. Uh, I know that investigations of migrant smuggling are not easy because the people who are smuggled are themselves in the illegal situation, so they're not too keen on cooperating with the authorities. But uh, clearly we need to, uh, someone needs to spend more time investigating. Uh, when these people are stopped, and we stop hundreds of people every week uh, at the border, uh, there's rarely an investigation about how they got there, who they supported them, who facilitated that, who was waiting for them on the other side. Uh, basically, we focus on that person, on this person trying to cross, and the investigation mostly stopped there. Uh, right. But there have been a lot of warnings. I mean, this is sort of a different issue because it doesn't involve what was happening at Roxham Road, which was an irregular border crossing. But I think one of the things that benefited, one of the benefits of it was that everyone knew where to go. Now, there had been a death of a, of a Haitian uh, migrant earlier in the year in that area. So it's not without its risks. But the idea that it was all funneled into one area, that's now gone. And, and certain people were warning that we may see more dangerous crossings now because of the fact that Roxham Road has been shut down this one area under this new agreement between Canada and the U.S. Do you agree with that? I think it's a fair assumption. We don't know for sure, but if people can't take the easy route, they're probably going to take the hard one. Makes sense, right? You know, they're not going to simply abandon the whole idea they're determined to come. And uh, I don't think that I would link the, today's incident, the incident we found out no. today, to this one, but uh, clearly... Uh, most people will try to to take the safer route if they can, right? And, you know, some of the people or traffic are coming business class on a plane, right? So uh, there are other ways to be trafficked, you know, with false documents and all this. Basically, these are people who took the hard way uh, and are held by, uh, I would suppose, by uh, smugglers who are very incompetent yeah. and very careless. I guess we'll find out more, yeah. Yes, I guess we'll find out more about the exact nature of what happened to these two families, how they came to be, where they came to be, and who, if anybody, uh, is responsible for it. I mean, we'll figure out who may have been responsible. But as you mentioned, this happens, this is just the tip of the iceberg, right? This is happening all the time. And when we read about these tragedies or see these tragedies, it's only a reminder of the dangers that are involved. Uh, Yvonne Dandurand, thank you so much. Have a nice weekend. Have a nice weekend. and Thank you. Good evening. <laughs> We're going to talk about how cold it's been. How cold it's been in Winnipeg specifically. Hey, is it cold out? Really cold. Scary cold? I don't know. What's your definition of scary cold? <laughs> that. What is that? <laughs> what? When did you get that? This week. My father got a deal from a friend of his. It's Gore-Tex. You know about Gore-Tex? You like saying Gore-Tex, don't you? What are you? You can't even turn around in that thing. Here we are, March 31st, and you know, Seinfeld, the, the big coat, that's George's big coat, big Gore-Tex coat. You know, this is the time of year where we think that even as Canadians, we should have been given the great benefit of being able to put that coat away for spring. You know, the longer days come, we expect warmer temperatures too. Well, that hasn't been the case across much of Canada so far in March of 2023. In like a lion and out like, well, at least a cub, right? At least a cub. It's been snowing in Ottawa today. I was seeing pictures on social media. Never made it above zero in St. John's. That's just part of it. It's still cold on the prairies. But spare a thought for the people of Winnipeg, where they woke up this morning to, I think it was minus 13 when the sun rose on the last day of March. It crawled up to minus two late this afternoon. It never made it above freezing. And that's what we're getting at here. That sealed a record-setting march for the place affectionately known as Winterpeg. It means that not once in the 31 days that make up this month did the temperatures in Winnipeg manage to climb, manage to nose above the freezing mark. Not once. That has not happened since 1899, which happens to be the coldest march on record for the city that knows a thing or two about cold weather. The bad news, it isn't going to warm up anytime soon, although it finally looks, speaking of Sunday, it finally looks like if you sit down for that nice Sunday breakfast in Winnipeg, that uh, it'll climb up to one. One. It hasn't been there forever. One. Uh, the good news is that it should be better next year. Well, to explain all of this is Natalie Hazel. She's a warning preparedness meteorologist at Environment and Climate Change Canada, and she lives in Winnipeg. Natalie, thanks for your time tonight. 
You're welcome. Well, I mean, we, other Canadians often associate Winnipeg with cold, <laughs> but this has been yes. an exceptionally cold March. Uh, what's going on? So it's not a record cold March. It's not the coldest March we've ever had, but we haven't seen temperatures above zero this March. Normally, if we look at the 1981 to 2010 Canadian climate normals, Winnipeg sees about 15 days, so half the month, where temperatures do reach above zero. That hasn't happened yet and is not expected to happen. This will be the second year since records began where March has not broken the freezing point. Yeah, going um, back to like 1899, right? It goes yeah, back a long ways. Yeah. 1899 is incidental, the coldest March we've ever had since records began. The average that year for March was about minus 16, minus 17. Wow. Ours is uh, this year, 2023, about minus 11. So we're not a record year at all. It's just this weird coincidence that we did not break zero. Just that, just that, uh, that consistency throughout the month. So normally you get yeah. 15 days where it climbs above freezing, which makes sense. It's yeah. spring, right? Well, it's, yeah, it's time. It's spring, it gets warmer. Right, but not this year. What's going on meteorologically? So if we look at the analyses, so we can look at what happened at the surface, we can look at what happened aloft. Uh, repeatedly, we saw the prairies under the influence of a ridge of high pressure defined by Arctic air. So we had many instances where the circulation allowed flow from the north or the northwest, uh, which is pretty regular here, uh, to be honest. And there's nothing to stop that cold air from coming down into southern Manitoba, right? We don't have big mountain features or anything like that right. in north of us. So there's no wall, there's no blockage, there's no thing to stop that cold air. And typically under ridges of high pressure, you get very clear skies and very calm skies. Under clear, calm skies, we often see temperatures fall quite dramatically at the surface. So we'll be under an inversion, not only because of the ridge, but also because of uh, the fact that there's no sunlight. So we get these particularly cold conditions sometimes under these ridges. And we did see that a few times this March as well, not as extreme as our warning criteria, uh, but still quite cold. And dangerously cold. We did have wind chill issues and risk of frostbite uh, multiple times this month in southern Manitoba. So um, a combination of those two things have led to you know these conditions throughout a lot of the month. Now, why did that happen repeatedly? Why did we have a low pressure system sitting over Hudson Bay, allowing the flow to be from the north? Why did we have these ridges of high pressure over and over and over? Well, part of that has to do with uh, what we call the Southern Oscillation, which is the phenomenon or oscillation associated with El Nino. Right. This year, like the last two years before it, we've been in La Nina conditions. It is rare that we have La Nina conditions for three years in a row. And you'll also notice, if you lived here, that the three years were very different one from another, even though all three had La Nina conditions. And that had to do with the relative strength of these La Nina conditions. La Nina is the cold phase when we're looking at what's happening in the Pacific Ocean at the equator, the surface temperatures there. La Nina is also the cold phase for us. So we care about what happens in the equatorial Pacific because it will influence how the weather behaves here by changing where the jet stream sets itself up and therefore which trajectory lows and highs are likely to take across the continent. So the cold phase in the Pacific leads to a jet stream position that allows that cold air to descend into southern Manitoba, that allows those systems to come through, that will allow that ridge to set itself up and sit over the area for an extended period of time. Ridges so, tend to be slow. So, so a bit of a perfect storm then at this March. In a way, or... yeah, a bit of a combination of things. So, uh, the Southern Oscillation or the El Nino question is not the only oscillation, but it is one of the more dominant ones when the conditions are strong. And they were stronger this year than they were last year, which is why coming into late winter, early spring, we been under these colder than normal conditions, although bright and sunny. So, which is nice. Which you know, is people, nice. And, yeah, and people's morale alone, was right? probably a bit better. Oh, good. Than it would have been otherwise. <laughs> and we were I, I, getting really tired of the gray skies, I must say. But yeah, clear but cold. 
you're not alone too. I mean, I mean, we, we were talking specifically about Winnipeg just because it had this remarkable march with no day above zero. Mm-hmm. But it's been cold everywhere, right? Everywhere oh, yeah. across a yeah, wide West, swath. Western Western Canada, Western continent, if you want, but definitely Western Canada has seen colder than normal pretty much everywhere for the last while. Perhaps Alberta uh, had a few more warmer days, as they often do with you know the Chinook and the downs downslope winds that they get from the mountains. But even with that, looking at their values, I think they have seen below normal averages for the month of March as well. Yeah. I mean, just as a Winnipegger yourself, it, it must be, I mean, what kind of impact does it have when it just doesn't warm up? I'm sure everyone is frustrated by the, the delay in the coming of spring. But from a meteorologist's point of view and being aware of what else is going on, a delay in the spring means that the melt is also slowed down, right? which might be a good thing for the flooding question. You'll have to talk to the province. That's not really my jurisdiction. But you know, if more of the snow can sublimate, so go from solid to this phase, maybe then there'll be less snow left on the ground for when right. it finally melts. Right. So, so a silver lining uh, in your cloudless I'm, days. I'm hoping, yeah, yeah, I'm hoping that there is a, a little bit of a benefit to this delay in the spring. Yeah, I mean, we're about to turn the corner into April. Is there is there hope on the horizon for Winnipeggers and others? Um, so our forecast right now are calling for these below normal temperatures to continue at least for another two weeks. So only until the middle of April will we see back to normal or seasonal conditions. A quick reminder, though, seasonal conditions at this time of year for us is freeze-thaw cycle. Right. Um, so temperatures above zero during the day, temperatures below zero at night means that whatever snow we do have on the ground can melt and then can refreeze. So road conditions, sidewalks, parking lots, paths, they could all be very difficult as we get closer to temperatures reaching above zero or closer to seasonal so seasonal is not necessarily easy or less dangerous. Right? No. There are there are issues and things that we can that we should be paying attention to or looking for. So as you're driving, remember that the time of day does make a difference and conditions from point A to point B can be very different. Right. So check road conditions before you leave, pay attention to how things are changing as you go so that you can stay safer in these right. slightly different weather conditions, a depending few days on where ab- you are. A few days above zero wouldn't go amiss, though, would it? Would it? Oh, people would love it. It'd be great, except when they have to drive. <laughs> right, of course. Uh, you <laughs> yeah. mentioned that it, that it's rare that uh, La Nina sort of sticks around for three years. Uh, mm-hmm. are, we expe- we're, are we expecting that to, to switch for next year? We are just getting out of La Nina conditions right now. So we are expecting a few months at neutral conditions. So the anomaly is quite small next several months. At least that's what the forecast is suggesting. It is also suggesting by the time we get to this fall, we should actually be in El Nino conditions. So the warm phase for the Pacific and the more or less warm phase for Western Canada as well. So things are quite different than what we saw this winter and the spring by the time we get into later this year. Right. So things are looking a little better for March 2024, at least. Without repeating this record, one would one would think. You never know with weather, right? But That's true. There are other oscillations, and some things come about in a way that we might not quite expect. Like our forecasters are very skilled, and they're very good at what they do. But even then, you know, we're not going to get it 100% right all the time. Well, from all the rest of us, uh, we we hope we hope that uh, the mercury climbs above zero at some point for for Winnipeg. It would be nice if spring could finally begin, or at least feel a bit more normal. Natalie Hazel, thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, you can't get by if you're on the fly with a go for two from a cup, cause your energy pool needs that morning fuel. So eat breakfast, don't pass it up. Whether kid or grown up, you better own up to one big important fact after you've been sleeping your body's just creeping without breakfast in your act so eat breakfast don't pass it up presented in the interest of good nutrition by kellogg's 
Yeah, the 70s, right? That reminds me of one of those schoolhouse rock ones from back then. We are talking the most important meal of the day in this half hour. First, though, Janet and St. Albert was talking. We were talking about how it hadn't gotten above zero in Winnipeg for the entire month of March for the first time since 1899, and she wanted to pass on a bit of humor. Remember, the Quebec groundhog died on Groundhog Day, February 2nd, so we were stuck in a forever winter. Yes, Janet, yeah, that might be it. We were talking about that at the time, Poor, uh, the poor Quebec groundhog, whose name I'm now suddenly going to forget but I will remember eventually. Um, Catherine in Surrey was talking about her, quite a remarkably delicious-sounding breakfast that I thought I would share with you. It's 8.30, so I start, 8.30 Pacific, so I start to get a bit hungry at this time of the show, and I certainly don't have this uh, standing by. Your loved ones will hug you more if you make them this special treat that I love to make. Grilled cheese French toast. Grilled cheese French toast, imagine that. Two pieces of pumpernickel bread dipped in garlic, salt, pepper, egg, and a little milk on both sides. Put into pan and brown each side at a time. Put thick amount of cheese on cooked side and put together as a sandwich. Cooked on all four sides of two slices of bread. Top with salsa and enjoy. Yeah, that yeah, that sounds that you don't have to eat that for breakfast. That, that sounds like you could eat that at any time of day. Wow. That's a good one. You know, breakfast again. It is the most important meal of the day. And perhaps most of us take that to mean from a nutritional standpoint, as that Kellogg's commercial from the 70s would suggest. But my next guest believes it goes much deeper than that. It is a spiritual thing to share breakfast with the people that you love, especially when you take time to either make it together and then also enjoy it together. Specifically on Sunday mornings when we have a little more time, things aren't quite as rushed. Mark Pupo estimates he's eaten about 17,000 breakfasts over his lifetime, but some stand out, like for all of us, some stand out far more than others, including those made by his mom, especially when he was helping out, where he would sit down um, with his brothers, and they were expected to sit at the table and eat all of it together. And so more recently, he decided to do the same thing. He and his husband have a young son uh, who's six, and they decided to do the same. He decided to do the same thing with his young son. And part of what came out of the oven, so to speak, of that experiment was a new book called Sundays, a celebration of breakfast and family in 52 essential recipes. It's part cookbook, part memoir. All of it, though, is a tribute to that most important meal of the day. And Mark Pupo joins me now. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's such an important meal, and yet we don't pay tribute to it as much as one might expect. And uh, you know, and you do. Uh, and what was the inspiration mm-hmm. for the book? I suppose. I mean, I, or maybe just the inspiration for for sitting down and actually starting to cook breakfast again. Well, you're you're right. This din- dinner gets all the attention. It's the <laughs> the glamorous meal of the day. I think lunch is usually pretty efficient. Breakfast is this intimate at home thing, often in our pajamas. You know, a lot of people you're just looking at your phone or something and reading the paper. So get paper. It's, it's not something that we spend too much think, time thinking about. We just crack open a box of cereal. But I've I've always loved breakfast food. It, some of my favorite childhood memories involve making breakfast with my mom. And I wanted to bring about a bunch of that into my house. I have a six-year-old at home, a boy, and I wanted to you know, get him off his iPad and do something that would be special for us, uh, sort of get a new weekly routine. So we started a little while back doing this Every Sunday, we would cook breakfast from scratch together. Ended up sort of happening in different days of the week too, but it was always a Sunday thing. And it was our way to to have some fun in the kitchen for me to do some, you know, some parenting and teaching without being too over the top about it. Sort of give him some, you know, just help him figure out how to make things and be more independent and and feel comfortable in, in the kitchen and and bring bring in some a lot of those recipes that I've that I learned from my mom. I mean, I remember breakfast growing up as well. It was actually something I remember more with my grandparents because they tended to take the time to sort of sit you mm-hmm. down and do it old school. My grandmother, for some reason, always ate puffed wheat on Sundays and only on Sundays, which was <laughs> a, which sort of taught me the importance of the ritual. Now, there's nothing very glamorous about pouring a bowl of puffed wheat. But tell me a bit about your breakfast growing up with your mom and what your memories of them were. Oh, they were a lot of big ones, a lot of, a lot of several courses. There was always, you know, we start with a lot of fruit. Um, then often she, we would have, you know, I had, I had two brothers, so there was a lot of cooking involved in this house and my mom would go, you know, nothing that would be too strange for a lot of households. We would had a lot of pancakes, a lot of French toast, a lot of big, heavy carb breakfasts and all of it from scratch. And when I was probably around my son's age, around, you know, five or six, she started getting me involved in doing it too. And I remember thinking this was, it was strange getting permission to actually like crack an egg and yeah. help whisk things and, and be part of that process. And it, it felt really 
Um, like, I, yeah, just this amazing moment. You sort of feel like, oh, wow, this isn't this isn't this thing I should be um, staying away from. This is something I should embrace and and, uh, and I, something that I could do myself. Yeah, it, remarkable, because I guess cooking is one of the first things as, as a child, you just sort of feel like food magically appears in front of you. Mm-hmm. Right? And, yeah. and it's important <laughs> to learn that, that you know, especially as you get older, that it certainly does not. And you used to mm-hmm. sit down for these two, like this was a sit down family thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, we weren't allowed, you were, you know, we weren't always, my brothers and myself weren't always getting along, but we had to sit down anyway, um, just build a wall of cereal boxes between us. And it would be, you know, it was, it was family time. And I think it's a good, a good way to, especially if you can carve out that time, you know, just a few minutes in the morning is a good way to sort of just sort of have everyone touch base and get, you know, start the day right. And I have this philosophy for our household anyway, that if we have fun with breakfast, the rest of the day is going to be fun too. Right. Well, I mean, it, and it's worked, right? You, you mentioned it. I, I've heard you talk about this in other venues that with uh, mm. with your son and, and, and your husband, I guess, that everything has gone yep. really well in the morning. Like this has become a routine that, that everyone enjoys, specifically uh, the fact that you get to spend some family time together, which is hard to come by. Yeah, for sure. It's easier to come by if you're maybe you know, on a Sunday, which is yes. how the book happened. But um we get up a bit earlier. Sometimes a lot of the recipes in my book are things that you can start the night before. You know, now you don't always have a lot of time to cook in the morning or you don't feel like getting up that early to do it. So we, it takes a bit of planning. And I think that's, that's part of some, one of those skills I like to sort of teach to my kids. So it was like, here, you can't just do, can't, you don't have to race through everything. It takes a bit of forethought and, and sort of thinking through what do we want to get out of this and what's, what's the reward from it. And the reward is hopefully something really tasty. Yeah, I, I've noticed that some of the um, some of the recipes that you've uh, favored. One is called pasta pie, which seems to have become a <laughs> a daily, a, a more of a weekly routine, not just a Sunday one. Uh, yeah. but you, you've made yeah. some interesting, and it's interesting to. I, I imagine it's probably interesting too to see your son's taste buds evolve as well. Oh yeah, every kid is a bit fussy. <laughs> Another that's what they that's what they're known for. And he's, you know, there are weeks where he just doesn't want to touch anything with tomato sauce. It's it's great to introduce things to him, and I think. With kids, especially if you get them involved in doing it, being part of the cooking process, and they feel some ownership over it, they they're more likely to eat this stuff too. So you know, this, some some kids, including mine, have weeks where the vegetables are completely banned. But he, if you sneak it into a quiche, like a little bit of zucchini, and there's some cheese too, and he's cooking it, and he sees what's going into it, and understands the process, he's and he feels. actually, I got to taste this thing. And then he realizes it's not that bad at all. And then you you make it, you know, it's nutritious, which is nice. It kind of demystifies it, doesn't it? When, when you, when you, when you cut it up and cook it yourself and add it to the recipe and so on, I hear he's pretty good at certain things or or better, better than even dad at certain things or uh, cracking eggs, for instance, you've mentioned. Oh yeah. He's, he's a perfectionist about some things like that. I'm, (laughs) I realized that I'm not, I'm, I'm good in the kitchen. I'm not as good, but he sort of takes it to the next level for the little kid. He never gets eggshells into the pancakes anymore. But you know, we, we it's I think it's it's also just good to like it took me a while to figure out that we could I had set boundaries. I was I'm I think I'm like a lot of parents where you sort of this I'm doing the cooking and the kids sitting at the table. You don't want to really you're sort of wary of getting them involved because you know it's, it's your you just creates a mess. Inevitably someone's gonna break an egg. But I've learned to relax a lot. He you know, and now I don't mind that it's a bit of mess and it just it's something that you need to just have there to do creative things and i think it's worth it so and you can always you know mop it up no big deal yeah interesting that, that you would discover stuff about yourself and yourself as a parent mm-hmm. in the process as well it's not just about teaching it's not just a teaching moment for the for the for the son no no <laughs> i yeah i i think he <laughs> i definitely learned a lot about myself <laughs> it's just, you, you reflect on what you're doing and you realize no well, you know parent parenting it's every day is a little bit different but you you need to step back a bit and uh, realize how you're, you know, what kind of example you're setting for your kid. And and I think why I made this book all about breakfast was it, it's this way to, as I said, sort of set, set the tone for the day, sort of carve out some time where we're doing something that is personal and intimate and and that we do together. And that sort of togetherness is, is I think, a good way to, to reinforce that that bond that you have with your kid, and and hopefully, it carries through. Uh, Mark, you dug into some history. I mean, there's a lot going on in the book too. It's you know, there's some recipes, mm-hmm. there's there's memoirs, there's a bit about your relationship with with your own family. There's a bit of a relationship mm-hmm. as a, with your family as a child. You also dug into some history of breakfast foods. What did you come up with there? That's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I, well, it started the original pitch that I took to my 
to my publisher was this is going to be a pop culture history. I imagine it's like one of those fun little books you find at the cache at the bookstore. Right. That's, you know, this is, did you know that? cornflakes come from this kind of like that kind of stuff. Oh, and so that was the I, premise, and, right? I get yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the pandemic happened and I was, so I was working on all of that and, but also doing a lot of cooking at home and sort of thinking through a lot of these recipes that I would do with my mom as a kid and, and things that I, you know, were real touchstones for me and that my kids started to love. And I just, and it evolved into this kind of hybrid book of memoir cookbook and, and then a lot of history of like, where do these things come from? And, and there are, Admittedly, these are very personal recipes for me. A lot of them, there are a lot of things that I love. So, uh, but I'm hopefully you know, within that variety of 52 other people find some stuff that they love as well and, and stuff that they relate to. But yeah, the the history part of it, it's, you know, breakfast is one of those things that's just so familiar. You kind of don't think about it most of the time. Like what, you know, there's cereal boxes in the aisle. They've always existed at the grocery store. So, you don't know, where do they come from? Why are they there? But, you know, some things like cornflakes, for example, has this curious history where, a guy actually with the last name of Kellogg, John Harvey Kellogg, he had a bit of a competition with this other fellow who was also creating breakfast cereals at the time. They all had this, this was back in a sort of early, late 19th century in the US. And they were both um, Seventh-day Adventists. So there, there was a religious streak to a lot of what they were doing, a kind of puritanical zeal. And they thought breakfast cereal was this make an argument for that today too, that it was this very healthy thing, a healthier way to start your day than carbs. Uh, so yeah. Uncar- bacon, well, yeah. It, well, bacon and eggs and yeah. greasy things. And it was also just an essential part of your early morning that it made you, you know, b- better, better prepared spiritually for the day. I think it makes you better prepared physically and mentally to have a good breakfast every day. And there's a lot of studies that then, so I go into the book into like a lot of these medical studies, scientific studies, into health and how you how you distribute your your nutrition during the day and people who skip breakfast are are according to the most recent studies there was a big one that came out of Australia they had an 87% increase in risk of death from um, things like cardiovascular disease so right. There is a good argument, a scientific argument for having breakfast makes, in addition to, yeah, maybe the maybe the religious argument still holds for some people. I don't know. But it's, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I, mean I, 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 I worked abroad for a long time. And one of the one of the most interesting things is you go if you're staying in a, in a relatively nice hotel in a place like Shanghai, mm-hmm. for instance, their breakfast buffet, because they have people from all over the world there. For every other meal of the day, people will eat other people's foods, generally very comfortable eating other people's foods. For breakfast, yeah. everyone tends to gravitate towards what they know. Breakfast For is sure. that weird meal that, that that is the comfort meal of the day. It's a familiar meal, but it's interesting. I mean, how has the reception been so far? Because this is a tribute mm. to the very notion that you should take time out at least once a week to sit down and make breakfast a proper meal. I, I'm surprised. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This is my first cookbook, so I, was, mm-hmm. I wasn't sure what kind of reaction I'd get. And so far, I've I've been really surprised at how enthusiastic people. I'm trying not to sound too braggy here, but you know, people have been reaching out to me, good friends, but also just people I've never met before, saying you know that they they've been reading these stories that I've got in here about this thing that they just they thought they knew really well, which is breakfast, but you know, not sort of thinking about it from a new angle, thinking about it from this very sort of personal sort of family experience and relating to it and having. I can't tell you how many people have actually reached out and told me that the book made them cry. And I was like, oh, I'm hoping it's not wow. sad, right? But no, but, you know, cried just because no, they it's, were It's sentimental, right? It. It's yeah. sentimental. Yeah. It's different. It's different. Yes. Sad and sentimental. I mean, I think a lot of us th- think back to those times when we used to take the time to sit down for breakfast. And it reminds us again, the first mm-hmm. person I thought of was my, you know, my grandmother, rest her soul. She's been gone for a while, but she was a sit down for breakfast disciplinarian. Those are the people in your life who are gone, right? So I think when you think back to those breakfasts, it, it does remind you of, always reminds you of a simpler time when you could do that. So it's nice to be, and, and how easy it is to recreate too. I mean, I think some, I don't understand why we don't do it considering how it easy it is to do and forgiving too i think a lot of a lot of the recipes that you're making for breakfast are not nearly as high stakes in a sense as like a, a you know fancy dinner that you're putting together like the breakfast food if you're able to get a few simple ingredients together it's pretty pretty it's you know fun low, low stakes it's a casual time I, yeah. I actually have the, the one recipe that you met you mentioned earlier what, what i call leftover pasta pie yes pasta pie um, yes just it's not I didn't invent this. This is an old sort of Italian trick for using leftover pasta. So you you know, the night before you had you might have made a bit too much. Your family didn't make it through that whole giant bowl of, of spaghetti. Yeah, um, we always and, make too much pasta, right? I mean, that's but, the- <laughs> yeah. But I wanted to and this is something that we might we do when I was when I was younger and now we're doing it with my kid and he's obsessed with it. But you take your old pasta, well not old, but you know, last, last night's and mix it with 
with um, some whisk eggs. Uh, I, I have four and then a couple, couple cups of cheese, mozzarella and Parmesan and slowly fry it in a pan and then put it in the oven and bake it for a little while. And it comes out like a frittata that just happens right. instead of potato. It's pasta. So it's a, this a pasta frittata. Yeah. And it's so like, it takes me back to, you know, my family's kitchen to that moment as a kid. And just, it feels you know warm and fuzzy in the best kind of way. For sure. Um, had you, had you, had you recreated it recently or did you make it for the first time with your son? I had done it every once in a while. Actually, when, right. when I was, you know, still in, first moved away from home went to school post-secondary school and, and was off on my own for the first time i would make it as a kind of comfort food i have a couple right, of recipes in the book yeah. there referred to that way like wieners and beans was a thing that we would have when i was a kid and i started cooking it whenever the stress of exams or something was coming up so pasta pie was one of those and i started doing it again with my with my kid and yeah he is he well he could eat spaghetti morning noon and night yeah. morning noon and night so it's uh something that we come back to a lot yeah, I did the same with my mom's carbonara, but was you know you know carbonaras can be a bit of a tough meal if you don't get your timing right. And I got yeah. my timing wrong for many years, but I finally <laughs> got it down. I've t- it only took me twenty years, but I finally got it down. Mark Pupo, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks a lot. 